And as you're seated, I invite you to turn to Luke's Gospel, the Gospel of Luke chapter 20, verses 41 to 44. Gospel of Luke chapter 20, verses 41 to 44. And as you turn there, uh, I should note this morning, it's officially Palm Sunday, which is traditionally when the church celebrates the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. Now, uh, traditionally, this is a very fun day. Uh, kids will often come in the church waving palm branches. There's usually lots of happy songs about Jesus being our king and being our savior. And that's like all great. I'm down with all of that. But as we're going to see in a moment, we are very much reenacting the mood of the crowd. The crowd is happy. The crowd is joyful. The crowd is singing. But Jesus isn't. In fact, as we're going to see, and as some of you maybe know, Jesus is actually very sad which tells us not only that there's two different judgments being made about what kind of moment this is, it also tells us that there's some misjudgments being made about this moment. And it's not going to surprise you uh, that Jesus is not the one making those misjudgments. Uh, So speaking of misjudgments, I remember as I was thinking about misjudging moments when I was in middle school, and one of my best friends had been called out of the room because his father was about to succumb to cancer. And the mood is very sad for all of us, and my judgment at that moment was I should cheer everybody up. And so I made a stupid joke about how I wished I could get out of class, right? Like, it's just, that is such a stupid thing to say. Uh, I still feel embarrassed about that. Uh, I misjudged the moment. I misjudged my words. I misjudged the context. And... I distinctly remember I made everything worse because I decided that a joke was appropriate where tears were required. Um, I'm still embarrassed by it, as I said. Uh, I imagine that when the disciples looked back on this moment, they were also embarrassed. Because like me, they had misjudged the moment and they must have realized it as soon as they saw Jesus weeping. And I'm sure they were especially embarrassed when they heard Jesus say, you do not know the things that make for peace. This morning, our goal is to look at the disconnect between Jesus and the crowds, between Jesus and his disciples, maybe even between Jesus and us, so that we can ask ourselves, why does Jesus weep when the crowd and the disciples are rejoicing? And what does that have to do with peace And then finally, how do we embrace the same judgments that Jesus does? Uh, Because I I think I can say this confidently, we don't want Jesus to weep at our version of peace, do we? No, I think we want Jesus to say amen to our version of peace and to rejoice with us at that peace as we pursue it in his name. So that's our goal this morning. As you can see, those are the points on our wall. Let's read Luke chapter 20, verses 41 to 44, pray, and then we'll reflect more on this together. And maybe just to add this to, to give you, make you understand how profound this is, Jesus only weeps three times in the scriptures. Lazarus, here, Gethsemane. So this is very, very important in Jesus' life. Luke chapter 20, verse 41. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you 
and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Thus far the reading of what can only be God's own word. Let's pray together. Father, we want to understand our Lord's words uh, so that we can receive them into our hearts and so follow him into the way of peace so that we can act in a way that does not cause our Lord to weep but to rejoice. But Father, we know that this will not happen unless your Spirit blesses your word to us. And so therefore we pray that your Spirit would give us ears to hear your word, minds to understand your word, and hearts to believe your word. Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher, may the meditation of all our hearts, may it all now be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So our text doesn't really begin where I started reading from. It really begins back in verse 28. And while I talked about the uh, disconnect between Jesus' reaction and the crowds already, I think it's important for us to really kind of see these events in our minds. So this whole event begins with Jesus going to the Mount of Olives, which, by the way, is where the Garden of Gethsemane is. And he tells his disciples to go and get a donkey because he's going to ride it into Jerusalem at the holiest time of the year. And that's important because if you were here two Sundays ago, remember donkeys are what kings ride on when they come in peace. And it's what the Messiah is supposed to ride on into Jerusalem, according to Zechariah 9, verse 9. Uh, So Jesus has the disciples go and get this really politically and religiously symbolic ride so it can carry him into the capital city of Israel during the holiest time of the year. And when they return and Jesus starts riding the donkey, the disciples and the crowds, they lay their cloaks in front of Jesus, kind of like a red carpet. Children and adults, they take palm branches and they wave them in front of Jesus and they sing and they shout, Hosanna, that means praise God, Hosanna, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, it's not just the 12 who are doing this. right? This is a huge crowd that has gathered during one of the holiest weeks of the year. There are thousands of people in Jerusalem at this time. So I think we have to imagine at least hundreds of people, because as the Gospels tells us, this takes in verse 39, they were so noisy that it scared some of the religious leaders. They, they wanted Jesus to rebuke these folk because they feared provoking the Roman politicians and making them afraid there was going to be a rebellion. And just to say the small, loud groups of Jews do not get the attention of Roman elites, but big ones do. So I think it must have been at least hundreds of people waving branches singing to Jesus. Children would have been among them. I'm sure they would have been dancing and clapping because that's what kids do when they're happy. Uh, With all the singing and waving people, all the laughing, it was this incredibly loud, incredibly joyful scene. But then you look over and you see that as Jesus gets closer to Jerusalem, he's not laughing. He's not singing. He's not even smiling. In fact, he's sad. And that's confusing. So you look away at the crowd to see if you missed something. And then as you're looking at the crowd within that noise, maybe even above that noise, 
you hear the sound of weeping. Our text says Jesus wept. Beloved, weeping is not quiet. It's not contained. It's loud. It's wet. It's messy. And at the sound of weeping, you turn and you see that Jesus' face is wet and his beard is wet. There's mucus in his mustache because that's what happens when you weep and Jesus is a human man. And his face is contorted as he sobs because that's what happens when you weep. That is the image the Gospels want us to see. They want us to see all these people laughing and singing and celebrating. And then they want us to see, and I think even hear, Jesus weeping over them. My friends, once you see this, I think you start to understand how mismatched Jesus' view of this situation and the crowd's view of the situation are. And I'm sure this wasn't lost on the crowd. It certainly couldn't have been lost on the disciples. And while our text doesn't record anyone asking Jesus any kind of direct questions, surely they were all kind of starting to ask themselves, like, what's wrong? What happened? Like, why is he so sad all of a sudden? I don't, I don't get it. And I'm positive Jesus answers that question when he says in verse 42, would that you... Even you, and that means especially you, would that you, especially you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Why does Jesus say this? What makes Jesus so sad that he openly and loudly and messily weeps in front of hundreds and hundreds of people? as they celebrate his entry into Jerusalem? Well, the answer, I think, has to lie in the fact, given what Jesus says, that the crowd wants peace through a different path than the one Jesus offers. And Jesus knows that the path the crowd wants to walk on leads only to more dispeace, leads only to more hurt, to more alienation, to more pain, to more death, why do I say that? Well, two weeks ago, we talked about how the crowd was greeting Jesus using songs and symbols from an old successful rebellion. And I told you that the palm branches and the songs we hear them singing in Luke chapter 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, which takes, comes from Psalm 118, by the way, that those were used in the two-generation-old Maccabean revolt. And everybody knew it. Uh, when you see an American flag with the circle of stars... When you hear the phrase, give me liberty or give me death, you know that's from our Revolutionary War, a successful revolt. The same is true here. So as the crowds and as his disciples greet Jesus as he rides on a donkey, they are, in their minds, celebrating the arrival of peace. But peace how? Peace through violence. Peace through war. Peace through death. Peace through the suffering of their Roman conquerors and the domination of their enemies. And I just want to stop and think about this more for a second because I think it's so important to what Jesus says next. And I think it reveals a lot about our own hearts as people. Okay, so I want you to think about Israel's experience of Rome. So Rome comes in about 90 years earlier. That's all along Rome had been there. So about a generation, right? About a grandparent's life away. And she kills Israel's sons and daughters. 
either through direct warfare, enslavement, sometimes heavy taxation in certain areas that caused starvation and death, and also by forcing some of her sons to become soldiers who have to leave their homes and go conquer other nations and kill those nations' children. Soldiers who will also sometimes have to kill their own Israelite brothers and sisters, like when some Jews showed up uh, in front of Pontius Pilate about 20-ish, 25 years before Jesus shows up before Pontius Pilate demanding help for food because of the high taxation, and Pilate has them beaten to death with sticks with nails on the ends of them. Pilate's not a good dude. Rome will tax you and he'll use your money to fund the soldiers who daily terrorize you. He'll throw some of you in jail, usually men, though sometimes women. And by the way, Roman jails were so notoriously awful that it was not uncommon for prisoners to commit suicide and kill themselves rather than wait for trial. My friends, in some ways, Rome was a truly great nation. But in most ways, the Roman Empire was truly awful, especially if you weren't Roman. And I say all that so you can understand why Israel is looking for what is why Israel is looking for peace that is not uh, on that does not follow Jesus's path of repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation. Rather, what Israel is looking for is peace through revenge. To adjust a current meme, uh, she wants to drink happily from a mug of Roman tears. And as Jesus sees this, he weeps because he knows that the path of peace the crowd wants will lead where that path always leads. Uh, in verse 43, Jesus gives what scholars usually call a prophecy, though given the way that bitterness always gives birth to bitterness and the way violence always gives birth to violence, those who live by the sword die by the sword, Jesus says. Uh, I don't know that you can call this a prophecy exactly. I mean, certainly there's a prophetic element. Jesus knows the day and time and that this is going to happen. But it's also just a description of this way of living. Verse 43, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the day of your visitation. My friends, Jesus weeps because he sees that their desired path of peace, in quotes, will end. And he knows where it will always end, which is more death, more suffering, more alienation. And that heartache, murdered families and orphaned children and destroyed lives, breaks Jesus' heart to such a degree that he weeps openly. And as we think about this, I have two quick reflections for us. The first is, as human beings, we know the pressure for revenge against people who hurt us. Uh, we know the pressure to want violence to be used against people who scare us. And as Christians, like the crowds and the disciples, we know the temptation to name those desires God's desires. Surely the Lord wants them to suffer. Surely God wants them to face justice for what they've done. But we need to see that when we do that, Jesus weeps for us and for them. 
because it does not lead to peace. And we need to see that when we watch violence being done against people we don't like, and maybe even justifiably don't like, and we rejoice in our hearts and we bless God for their pain and their suffering and their death, and we think that our life will now be peaceful because our enemies have been laid waste, Jesus weeps for us because he knows it will not be peaceful. That is not the way to Jesus' path of peace. In fact, as Jesus says, we think that way, the path of peace is hidden from our eyes. My second reflection is similar, uh, but instead of being about groups, as I kind of envisioned that last point to be, and as it was certainly about between Israel and Rome, this is more personal. Uh, When individuals hurt us, or they hurt people we love, our instinct is to do what? Hurt them back. Get revenge. Dominate them if we can, so that they cannot hurt us ever again. It's a way to seek peace by mastering the people who make us afraid. And so rather than seeking peace through repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation, prayer, the love of enemies, turning the other cheek, the gospel of Jesus offered for the forgiveness of all sinners into Jesus's family, we seek it through what? Manipulation, slander, shaming, gossip, hard words, angry tones of voice, physical intimidation, monetary intimidation, threats, silent treatment, violence, on and on and on and on and on it goes. Because we think if we can hurt them enough, they will never hurt us again. And then we will have peace. And we can kind of like that idea. We can maybe rejoice at that idea. And when we do those things and we see the hurt land, on the people who have hurt us, our loved ones, we're happy because they are getting what they deserve. And Jesus weeps because it does not lead to peace. Just to more of the same. We abuse and we get abused. We sow bitterness and we reap bitterness from others. We withhold reconciliation and we find ourselves without friends. Do not be deceived, my beloved mother, my beloved brothers. God is not mocked. A person weeps what he sows, Paul says, and Jesus weeps. Uh, I don't want Jesus to weep because of me. I don't want him to weep at the way that I pursue life in my public life as a citizen, always first as a citizen of heaven and only then a citizen of the country that I'm in. Uh, I don't want him to weep at the peace that I pursue in my private life as I seek to represent Jesus well to everyone I meet, to paraphrase Paul, who said he became all things to all people so that by all means he might win some. So what would make Jesus not weep but say amen and rejoice with me and with us at the way we are seeking peace in his name? What would the, could the crowds and the disciples have done instead? I'm going to give you two answers. One is broad and another is specific. So here's the broad answer. For Jesus, the way of peace is not through the sword or through shame, or through power. It's through his cross. For Jesus, the way of peace is found in turning enemies into friends by doing what? By taking the debts that are truly owed to us when we are sinned against and forgiving them. By bearing in ourselves the costs associated with that forgiveness. 
because as we said earlier in this worship service, that's what forgiveness means, right? It means you choose to allow a debt to go unpaid. So who's paying the debt ultimately? You, me. That's what forgiveness means. It means we let someone free of the debt that we have a right to collect, but will not. And we will bear the loss and the cost for them. But what about repentance? Yes, but my friends, repentance is not repayment. If repentance were repayment, then you and I would never be forgiven because we would be constantly trying to repay Jesus for all the bad things we've done. No, repentance is telling somebody, I want to love you better, so I'm going to change and work hard at, ch at that change so I can do just that. That's what repentance is. I want to love you more. And I'm going to work at change so I can love you more. And so in terms of Jesus' path of peace, calling people to repentance is calling for them to love you better so that I can love you better. So that we can be in a relationship together that seeks love and harmony and holiness in all things. Repentance, is calling, repentance and calling people to repentance is an invitation into relationship. And that's where reconciliation comes in. Reconciliation is the work of making a new relationship where one is broken down. For Jesus, the, the path of peace is working together through repentance and through forgiveness to build a new life as brothers and sisters in the family of God. And when Jesus says, whoever would come after me must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me as the definition of what being a disciple of Jesus means, this is what he means. That's, that's the general statement about the path that Jesus wants us to see and walk down and experience. It's a path of forgiveness, repentance, and reconciliation. Now, I know that might sound too theoretical, uh, so here I'm going to try and make it more personal and practical. Uh, we're going to do that by reflecting on the final word Jesus says. So when Jesus ends his cry in verse 44, he says that these things will happen because they did not know the time of their visitation, which is a very interesting phrase, isn't it? Um, time is short, and uh, I don't want to geek out too much here on the text, but I do want to geek out a little bit, and I think it's important uh, so that we don't miss what Jesus is saying. So here goes. Uh, there's something of a pun Jesus is going on, which is interesting. Jesus is weeping, but he's also able to make a pun, which I guess rejoice always. Um, so the Greek word for visitation is the same word that we translate as overseer in Timothy and Titus, episcopes, one who looks after others. Now with that, notice that Jesus also says they didn't notice the time that their overseer was with them. Not the day. If Jesus had said day, as he sometimes does, he would have been drawing their attention to a very particular moment in time, like his birth or his return. But he says, he just says time. And the disciples will know, and much of the crowd would know, because they've been following Jesus around in various places, uh, that when Jesus talks about his time, he's talking about the whole length of time between his two comings, his birth and his return. He's talking about the time of salvation, the, the time of forgiveness being offered to sinners, the time when God is building his kingdom on earth and we are being made into a family of Jesus. He's, he's talking about our time. 
And by putting these two ideas together, that the time of salvation and the arrival of the one who looks after us, here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, the way of peace is hidden from you because you are not looking for me, the one who looks after you. You are not looking for where I am right now among you. You're not looking for the way that I am coming to live with you. And therefore, you are seeking a false peace, not the peace of the gospel, because you're not trying to look for the presence of the Messiah in your life, who is among you right now, looking after you. How does that help us? My friends, do you believe that Jesus is alive? Do you believe that he is here right now? Do you believe that Jesus is with you at home? Do you believe that when you watch the news, which all of us should do less of, and it sparks anger and bitterness and we feel pressure and all that stuff, do you believe that Jesus is with you? Do you believe that Jesus is with you when you get that angry email or text message? That he is alive and with you when you are profoundly mistreated? Do you believe that Jesus is with you even in the valley of the shadow of death? Because if you do, as I hope we all do, then look for him so you can follow him into the way of peace at that moment. How? Prayer. The Bible. And God's people who would better be pointing you to Jesus and to his path of peace and not something else. My friends, when someone sins against you, get on your knees and carry that debt to Jesus who bears all the debts of all of God's people in himself so that you can experience the repayment of his grace and so that you can pray that the person who has sinned against you could experience the repayment of Jesus' grace, the fullness of of his love as he brings sinners to repentance and to forgiveness and to reconciliation. Pray for their repentance if someone has hurt you, believing that Jesus is there with them, able to act because he is not a God of the dead, but the God of the living. Pray for reconciliation, meaning the chance to rebuild some kind of relationship through the gospel of Jesus as he works out his new creation power in their life through their repentance. Pray for real kingdom peace, not through violence and warfare and yelling and shouting and manipulation, but through repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation. Go to Jesus and say, Lord, I have debts that I cannot repay, but that need to be forgiven. You repay them for me. Please help. And Jesus, who is here, will do it. We need to learn to look for the one who is here looking after us. Because, beloved, if I can put it this way, I think I can, uh, today is the day of our visitation. Our overseer is with us, and he loves us, and he bears with us, and he does not need to weep because of us. If we can learn to see his path of peace as it runs through the cross to the resurrection and to the ascension. My friends, let's work at, the, at seeing the one who sees us 
and at following the one who lives with us. And let's work to see his real peace expressed in our lives and in the way we live and speak and act with one another through his gospel. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we don't want our Savior to weep over us. Uh, We don't want Jesus' way of peace to be hidden from our eyes. No, Father, we want to follow Jesus on his path of peace so that we would not only know his joy at our obedience, but also experience the real and lasting peace that the way of Christ alone brings. So help us, we pray, by faith to follow Jesus' way of the cross so that through the work of repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation done in his name and by his grace, we would give and know the peace of our Savior. Father, help us to look for the one who is even now here living with us, looking after us. And we ask this all in his name. Amen.